Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer Podcast. And today I am joined by Jan Vanderheide, who is with Beho Seeds. He is the Northeast Market Manager there, which is a daughter company of Beho uh, Zenden, a global breeder and producer of hybrid vegetable seeds. Jan's work involves working with breeders, phytopathologists, seed technologists, and other researchers to develop hybrid vegetable varieties that are widely adapted and fit today's markets. They play close attention to a number of different characteristics. A large part of Jan's time has been working with the farm crew in Geneva, New York, and with commercial farms to put together research and demonstration trials. These trials are used to evaluate, introduce new varieties, provide sales support and education to our dealers and distributors, and they welcome visits from growers, gardening enthusiasts, and a multitude of school groups as well. And in the season, all produce is harvested and distributed by local food banks. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Michael. Nice to be with you. All right. So w- when did I meet you? Was it at the, like a New England Vegetable Growers Conference? Or did I, I think, I know I came out to your research farm for a special tour that Sandy arranged. Gosh, it got to be a number of years ago. Yeah, I think uh, our mutual friend, uh, uh, Sandy Arnold, uh, is kind of our contact. Uh, I was visiting with Sandy in the Saratoga area, and uh, she suggested I stop by and, uh, and visit with you there as well. And I think that was... Oh, okay. Moons ago, and, and uh, I remember. Yeah. 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 No, this is a good. Uh, this is a, I mean, the one thing I remember, like, I forget who I was talking to after you visited, but like, I was like, oh my gosh, that guy can talk about cabbages for an hour. But it's fascinating, and we'll get to that in a bit here at the, uh, a little bit further in. But, um, you know, it's, it's once you start to understand these crops from the breeding perspective, there's just so much to think about. I think a lot of people don't think about that, but let's, we'll get dive into that in a bit. So what was your introduction? How did you get started in the vegetable breeding industry? Did you go to school for it or? Well, I was, uh, as, a, as a youngster, I was always interested in uh, yeah, the outdoors, uh, nature. Mm-hmm. I was not really one to sit inside and do my homework. I'd much rather be outside and climb a tree or dig a hole or do that kind of stuff. And I, uh, as I graduated from high school, I decided that I should maybe uh, be a biologist. Okay. A biologist at the University of Holland. And then I uh, came to the United States uh, and uh, found uh, work in, um, in a number of different trades, but eventually ended up as a technician for an onion breeder at uh, Cornell University. And then um, uh, not long after that, uh, a position opened up in cooperative extension here in uh, Oswego County, New York. And uh, I was an extension agent for well over 10 years. And then um, as it luck so happened, a position opened up at Bijo, which is about a, an hour and a half away in Geneva, New York. And uh, I was encouraged to apply and I did. And uh, I've been to Bijo now for over 15 years. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah. now with your job, you obviously bring a lot of, you bring the varieties in, you design the trials, you then trial them in the field. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what does a good trial look like? 
Well, uh, different trials are of course put together uh, with the different uh, uh, objects in objectives in mind. Uh, you know, sometimes you do. Uh, you know, a lot of growers are familiar with the herbicide trials and insecticide trials and things like that. Uh, what we really do is we want to, as we introduce new varieties, we want we want to see uh, for ourselves. Uh, if they are or if they are not better than the standard varieties. So typically uh, when we take uh, uh, our trials and, uh, and put them together uh, for viewing by our customers and the general public is plant the standard varieties that we know are uh, and well adapted to general culture in the industry. And then we plant the new varieties next to it. And then we see which one is healthier, which one yields more, which one stores better, uh, et cetera. You know, it's basically a side-by-side -side comparison of uh, the standard varieties with new varieties. And then uh, when the time comes for evaluation, um, either we like the new variety better or we don't. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty much, a, it's a very, very simple, simplistic way of uh, these trials but of course one trial doesn't necessarily always tell you everything because every year is a little bit different so we try to rep replicate these trials uh, different parts of the season but also different locations throughout the northeast or parts of the world and also different years especially when we take a look at breeding trials um, and when we when we enter a new cross into a breeding trial it may get a favorable uh, rating and that means that we plant it again the next year if it gets a favorable rating in the next year, it gets planted again in the third year. And typically a cross doesn't really advance to, uh, to a seed production status until uh, it's had a favorable evaluation for at least uh, two out of those three years. And it should, be, uh, it should get a decent evaluation in most locations. Um, that way we know that the, the cross is fairly widely uh, adapted. And, um, and and then we can then we can take a, a, a an educated guess about whether a, a new variety or new cross would add something to uh, of value to the grower or not, right? Mm. So the it's a, it's, a, it's a, the trials the objective of the trials is pretty simplistic really. Can we make something that is better or or uh, what we have made is it really not better and it, does it does it need to go? Uh, into the garbage bin, so to speak, and 98% mm -hmm. uh, so of what we develop goes in the bin. Yeah, so there's technically like two different types of trials. The one would be, um, you know, have a variety and you're testing against what's already out there. But the other mm -hmm. aspect would be trialing all these crosses to see, oh, is this good enough to advance to actually get to, you know, seed production or actually a saleable product? Right, right. Yeah, okay. we, we, the, the development process, of course, goes through uh, 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 quite a number of steps. So the trials that we plant in Geneva, usually for demonstration trials, yeah. are trials, they're really demonstration trials. So those are the newest varieties that we have for growers to take a look at and compare with their standard varieties. And we try to include as many of those standard varieties as we think is, is necessary, because of course, not everybody plants the same varieties all the time. But mm -hmm. that really is the, uh, the end of quite a long trialing process at that point. All right, so let's say you're breeding leeks, because I know that's something that you guys do, do some breeding of. Um, what, when the parents stock, when they're evaluating for that, are they evaluating the different characteristics of the different like parent lines and saying, well, we think this would cross well with this because of this? Or do you guys just make as many crosses as much as possible and then just trial all of them? No, uh, of course, uh, breeding, breeding uh, can be 
haphazard at some point or another. You just, you just kind of throw everything together and see if something comes out of it. But really what we're looking for is we're trying to uh, solve some problems through breeding. So if, for instance, there is a, uh, an issue with susceptibility to thrip, yep. uh, for instance, in leaks, uh, then we know there have, we have some lines have good resistance to thrips. Uh, of course, having good resistance to thrips doesn't necessarily mean that it is also a productive variety, that it is early, or that it stores well, or that it is resistant to bolting, or that it has good resistance to alternaria or different kinds of things. But at least that line contributes uh, to thrips tolerance, right? Hmm. So then uh, let's say that the market is looking for a good productive leak, uh, with a nice long shank uh, that re- matures relatively early, but is also resistant to thrips. Then we uh, cross that thrips resistant line with a line that contributes early, for instance, plus uh, we know uh, which early lines tend to be more productive, which not. So it's an educated guess. We say mm-hmm. a breeder breeder knows his or her uh, breeding lines very well. And then uh, uh, we basically uh, try to be uh, in touch with the markets to know what the market needs, mm-hmm. what improvements would be most desirable, because, you know, some some problems we can solve with cultural practices. Some can be solved with, uh, with uh, through chemical means, but some uh, cannot be solved. Or uh, the, the standard uh, methods that we have to control the particular diseases or pests are expensive, or are environmentally not very friendly, or are uh, are going to be phased out, and there's no alternatives available. So, ideally, through breeding, we can solve a lot of those problems. And uh, that means that we need to, we, 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 you know, there's, there's, a, there's a list of breeding priorities mm-hmm. that, uh, that the breeder uh, keeps in mind. And uh, we, start, we start at the top and work our way down. Okay. Now, let's, I know you guys, uh, Bayho has an incredibly um, big commitment to organic. Talk about that. Well, uh, we uh, committed to... Uh, producing a seed organically uh, all probably about 25, 30 years ago. Back then, uh, really what we were doing is we, we had quite a few uh, varieties that were fairly widely adapted and we're just uh, trying to see which, which parent lines we could produce under organic uh, circumstances. Now, we weren't the best organic growers back then and the lines that we had were not really that... Uh, well selected for organic production, but we had a, uh, a library, so to speak, a collection of breeding lines. And uh, we basically tried them all out and see which lines are, could we even produce organically? And then what those lines, we could make a certain number of hybrids. And that was kind of the beginning phase of our organic program. But uh, what happens, of course, is if you're used to growing things conventionally and you, then you start uh, to work with uh, organic production, you learn a lot. You know mm-hmm. a lot about what you can and what you cannot get away with in organic production. And that means that as uh, the time went on, uh, we began to focus more on uh, lines that we knew were good in production, that had good disease tolerance. And um, as a result, we ended up making varieties that could be used either in conventional uh, uh, production or in organic production, but that 
were reliable seed producers that had good disease and pest tolerance that uh, especially some of the pest problems in seed production but also of course if you have say for instance you have a variety that is resistant to downy mildew uh, that is a huge benefit when you're doing seed production because uh, seed production the crop is in the field relatively long and especially in a time when Normally speaking, the crop would be over mature, right? And it becomes much more susceptible to disease. But if you have lines that are resistant to downy mildew, that helps you in seed production. That also means that the, that the, the offspring of those lines is downy, are downy mildew resistance, which is a huge benefit to a grower who is not necessarily in seed production, but just wants to produce a good crop of onions or a good crop of uh, cabbage, for instance. Uh, and so I say that I would say that if we're talking about our organic program, what the organic program has really done for us is it's made us much better farmers, mm. it, uh, much more thoughtful, uh, much more uh, uh, has come, given us great insights into uh, the best production practices. But it has also uh, taught us a lot about uh, the, the, the value of uh, pest and disease tolerance, of course, but also uh, resistance to abiotic stress, you know, drought resistant mm -hmm. uh, varieties that have stronger root systems that are more efficient, uh, more efficient at mining the soil for nutrients. So we basically end up through applying organic principles with varieties that are more robust much more uh, adaptable, uh, can thrive uh, under more difficult conditions and uh, don't require nearly as much uh, addition of uh, fertility as uh, some of the older conventional varieties. So I think uh, what we, uh, where we, where we sometimes get some, uh, some discussion going is, you know, uh, are we breeding for organics or are we breeding for conventional or where is our commitment? And I think that what we basically see is that both of those things go hand in hand. Uh, the organic uh, uh, production practices have made us better farmers. So our conventional seed production is much better because of it. But also in conventional seed production, we uh, sometimes uh, learn things that we can then turn around and apply in organic seed production practices. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a very, a very, uh, it's been a very useful program for Bijo, but of course, uh, the interesting thing also is that uh, there's a, a huge market for organic seed. There's a huge demand for it, and uh, we've had the benefit of the last 30 years uh, gaining experience in breeding for organic uh, production and breeding uh, and and making seed under organic production practices, so that we can we can say we have truly. Uh, organic seed uh, for professional organic growers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So with organic production, then I think you mentioned a couple of things there, you know, the disease is a challenge. You have to have stronger root systems. You have to have, um, you know, insect tolerances, that kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. With, let's say, let's, let's move the onions. Cause I know that stuff you guys are working on as well. What are like right now, the main breeding um, points that they're looking for? I know like thrips is a huge thing with onions. Yeah, uh, trips is a big uh, a big concern, but the biggest uh, one of the one of the most exa interesting examples I mentioned down in Milder, for instance, Milder mm -hmm. in uh, in Europe, you know, a worldwide company, but uh, really uh, originally a European company, Holland based company. Uh, in Europe, uh, downy mildew is the most important uh, disease that can that can really. Uh, uh, destroy a crop relatively quickly and is the, is the biggest impediment to reliable production. Uh, and 
conventional growers uh, have quite an arsenal of fungicides. Uh, they can keep down the mildew under control, but the weather conditions in Northern Europe are such that, uh, you know, downy really thrives there. Here in North America, for instance, in New York, downy mildew occurs, but usually it's a little bit too warm for it. So we have other problems with, you know, botrytis or we have problems with stemphilium, for instance, but downy mildew is usually not that big of a problem. So for us in North America, downy mildew resistance isn't necessarily uh, what we are looking at. But in Northern Europe, downy mildew is very important. And uh, we were able to find the genes that confer downy mildew resistance and incorporate them in um, in some of the onion varieties. And one of the uh, varieties that uh, was quite successful in Holland was called Highlander, H-Y-L-A-N-D-E-R. And that uh, was such a success that uh, Highlander and a few other varieties uh, basically uh, caught the eye of the government and it said, uh, if you are going to grow um, organic onions, uh, you, 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 you pretty much have enough choices. There's enough uh, choices of varieties that organic growers uh, are basically told that uh, you cannot use untreated seed or, uh, or claim that you cannot find the right varieties that are available for organic production. But uh, there are now enough choices and Bijou Seeds has, together with uh, Syngenta Francis, have developed varieties that uh, have resistance to downy mildew that uh, the, if you are going to uh, grow organic onions for uh, commercial sales, um, these, are the, these are the seed varieties that, uh, that the government at that point uh, s uh, suggests that you use uh, or, or basically demands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're, we're not that far uh, in the United States uh, with that kind of regulation, and uh, we're definitely not pushing for that, that kind of regulation. But you can certainly see that in Europe, where the, uh, the, 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 the people kind of demanding a little bit stricter control of organic production and making sure that when somebody claims to be organic, that they are indeed uh, organic. There's a little bit more of a push for that kind of stuff, and there's also a little bit more... Uh, uh, yeah, incentive uh, from from higher up uh, to use uh, organically produced seed, and in the in the case of onions, for instance, that was a uh, that was a very interesting point. But uh, what we're finding out, uh, Michael, is that uh, you know sometimes there's uh, there were, sometimes we don't quite know what exactly the resistance of uh, the mechanism is of resistance. So in downy mildew, we don't really know why uh, what makes those onions resistant, except that we know that. Uh, the genes that uh, that confer resistance, we know where they are and we know how mm -hmm. to move them around so we can make the new varieties. But what we find, for instance, uh, is that those varieties are very, very clean and uh, don't have many other disease problems either. And what we see in uh, in New England, uh, especially the, the warmer, warmer parts of New England or in the Midwest, is that stemphilium is becoming a much uh, more important problem, and the reason for that is is that uh, stemphilium is a is a uh, an organism that uh, uh, very easily uh, adjusts to um, uh, fungicides and and develops resistance to fungicides relatively quickly. So there's very few fungicides anymore that can control stemphilium adequately, and uh, we have some major outbreaks of stemphilium that can really. Uh, put a crimp in the style of uh, onion growers, you know. By the time the crop is almost mature, uh, the crop is almost dead as well. And um, 
and the disease tops provide an easy entry point for bacterial diseases, etc. So Stemphilium can cause a real mess in onion production. But what we see then is that these varieties that are resistant to downy mildew, because they are so healthy and have such good resistance to foliar pathogens in general, that they tend to also have a good tolerance to, to Stemphilium. So uh, we, uh, we kind of look at it uh, in such a way that... Uh, varieties that have downy mildew resistance, we really should trial them more extensively in uh, the Northeast and in the Midwest, because uh, that could be the solution for people that have uh, problems with stemphilia uh, by choosing varieties that are just really healthy. They may be not totally resistant to stemphilium, but uh, they are definitely, uh, would give the growers a leg up uh, and at least get the crop to, to maturity before stemphilium uh, takes out the leaves. Mm -hmm. Those are those are kind of interesting interesting ways, you know. Um, we we have to we have to we have to learn uh, from growers what their problems are, uh, and and we are of course in constant communication with our dealers, with our distributors, but with growers themselves uh, as well. Uh, and it has to be a conversation back and forth. What do you need, and what can we make, right? Uh -huh. And um, there's always there's always challenges. Uh, every time we solve one problem, a new problem shows up. But sometimes when we solve a problem, you know, for instance, downy mildew in case of uh, onions in the northeast was really a, 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 a solution in in search of a problem. But maybe the stemphilium is just the problem that we can solve with it. So it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting interesting story, I think. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Now, one of the things too you mentioned there is you kind of worked with some of the other companies like Syngentis to like do you do cl uh, collaboration breeding, like working with other companies on that? Or yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a. There's a very few uh, vegetable breeding companies in the world. You know, you have Syngenta, you have Enzai, you have Bayo, uh, you have uh, Taki, Sakata, and you know, and uh, Seminus, and that's about it. Um, wow. Uh, if you, uh, you know, Enza, Syngenta, uh, Bayo, uh, they're all oh, uh, a comfortable bike ride away from each other in the province of North Holland. So uh, everybody that works at these companies, they, they know each other, mm -hmm. probably related to each other. Uh, and if they're not related to each other, they, they probably don't know it, but they're probably distant <laughs> from each other. And so uh, it's very easy to have those kinds of conversations. Uh, we're competitors of each other, but we're also kind of like, uh, you know, kind of grew up together in the business. So there is a lot of commonality. What's good for one company is often also good for another company. So in the case of uh, club root resistance in cabbage, for instance, we know that Syngenta uh, found, had one source of club root resistance and Bayo had another source of club root resistance. Uh, in Club root and cabbage, you typically have five or sometimes six. It depends on who you talk to, maybe even more races of club root. But the Syngenta source of resistance conferred uh, resistance to two or three of those uh, races. And the Bayo uh, source of resistance uh, conferred resistance to uh, one or two other races. But by combining those two resistance sources, uh, you would cover a broader range of uh, uh, club root um, pathotypes, so to speak. Uh, than if we were to work alone. And that's what Bayo and Syngenta then did. They had conversations about, uh, can we work together? Uh, can we combine these uh, different sources in a single 
traditional hybrid, uh, all the patent rights for one or the other, what would we, uh, what, what would the, the license fees be and that sort of stuff. Uh, and those conversations, uh, those, those conversations happen um, uh, from time to time, not all the time, but you know, uh, when it makes sense, uh, those kinds of conversations are very easily uh, arranged for sure. Uh-huh. All right, let's dive into cabinets a little bit because I know that's something you have great experience with. What are the different, I remember you told us to me like one point there's like six or eight different types of cabbage. So talk us through like a little bit about kind of like the cabbage world. Oh yeah, the, the world of brassicas is, is very, very diverse, right? I mean, the, the average consumer thinks of uh, cabbage as that round head, you know, uh, kind of like the weight of a, a bowling ball. Uh, a storage cabbage is what a lot of people think of, but that's such an old-fashioned vegetable uh, that we don't see those in the grocery store too many times anymore. Families have gotten quite a bit smaller. People don't cook as much uh, or used to not cook as much uh, with the pandemic. Maybe that has changed a little bit, but uh, uh, but if you really take a look at uh, cabbages, and I think that if people were to come to our uh, trials, demonstration trials, that we could, we could show it to you, there are cabbages that mature very quickly, uh, make nice small heads about of a baseball, the size of a baseball and about 45 to 50 days after transplanting, you're ready for harvest. Uh, it's just enough uh, for a, a meal for two people. Uh, and that's it, no leftovers. Uh, there are other cabbages that take a little bit longer to mature, have a little harder texture, uh, are quite popular with uh, processors because they make it drier type of a coleslaw. Then we have storage cabbage that is pretty much 80% of uh, the cabbage that is consumed in America because a lot of it is uh, used in, in cabbage rolls. A lot of the coleslaw that goes to uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, etc., comes from those kinds of sources. Then, of course, there is uh, white cabbage, there's green cabbage, there's savoy cabbage, there's red cabbage, there's pointed-headed cabbage. And then uh, if you want to extend the brassica family uh, a little bit farther, uh, it's not the same species, but Chinese cabbage, for instance, is another one that can be included in that. Uh, and then other members of the cabbage family are Brussels sprouts, kale, kohlrabi. Uh, there's flat cabbage. Uh, there's a, a huge range of different cabbage types. And it's important, I think, uh, to recognize those different types uh, because growers are trying to serve different markets, right? Uh, not everybody sells to a, a processor. Not everybody sells to a sauerkraut factory. Uh, and not everybody sells to uh, a CSA. But uh-huh. if you were to sell to a CSA, uh, and if that was a, a, or a farm market, for instance, wouldn't it be nice if you had just a small little fresh uh, head of cabbage uh, that is easy to eat, that has a nice light texture, that's juicy and crisp? Uh, that's the kind of cabbage I think that people would want. If you just if you were to say, I'm just going to grow cabbage and I'm going to grow the, the average, let's say, a, a variety like Bronco, for instance, boy, you'd have a hard time selling uh, that kind of uh, product to your uh, to your CSA customers because half of the weight in the CSA cabbage would be cabbage, right? That would be it would be overkill. Yeah. And if you're at a farmer's market, you know, that is probably too much cabbage for most people to handle. So you probably wouldn't move that much of it. But if you were to sell to a sauerkraut factory, for instance, yeah, that's a whole different story. Yeah, you're talking about acres and acres. You're talking about 60, 50 to 60 tons of uh, cabbage uh, harvest per acre, but it all is harvested with a machine. It goes in a big truck and it goes into the sauerkraut factory. And before you know, within a day, 
it's it's brined and and pickled in a vat, right? And waiting for uh, waiting for consumers. Uh, it ferments for about six weeks, but uh, that's a whole different way of growing. That's a, a very mechanized and automated way of growing. Uh, it's all about yield. It's all about tons, uh, and that's definitely not the kind of way that uh, if you were a roadside market or if you go like a farmer's market, that's not what you're. That's not what your customer is looking for. That's not what you're looking for. You're trying to make your customer happy with the, the right flavor, the right texture, uh, uh, the, the right quantity, the right price point, and things like that. I think uh, on a few acres uh, for a roadside market, you could probably make just as much money as you could make on 50 acres in sauerkraut cabbage. If you do it right, you have to find the right variety, and you have to find the variety that is right for your audience. And that's where I think brassicas in general offer a lot of choice. There's a lot of variety and there's a lot of ways to think about what to do with those individual varieties. And you're limited somewhat uh, by the genetics of the cabbage. But uh, if you have a, a, good, a good creative sense, uh, you, you, there might be more ways to cook cabbage than you think. Uh, and I, I can probably list some examples later on if you're interested. So now with cabbage, you got the small, uh, like the baseball size. Now mm -hmm. also there's the flat cabbages too. And uh, talk to me a little bit about what those are used for. Those are more of a wrapping, right? Well, uh, uh, the, the flat cabbages uh, have a whole, whole different uh, texture. Uh, if you take a look at uh, an average storage cabbage, for instance, uh, the, the leaves are thick. Uh, they're, they're not very uh, forgiving. Yeah, really, if you take a good slice of storage cabbage and you, and you, uh, you chew on it in a field, it's like eating plywood, mm. pretty much. It's hard. It's, uh, you have to really work at it. Uh, uh, flavor is not necessarily particularly fantastic, but you know that's the kind of cabbage that you need to cook uh, as meant to be eating raw. Uh, the flat cabbages have altogether different te texture. The, the leaves are quite large, but very thin and very crisp. And uh, really the way that you look at these, uh, these flat cabbages is, is through the eyes of uh, a stir fry, for instance, you know, uh, with, with the object of a stir fry. A lot, of, a lot of cabbages that are sold in China are these flat cabbages. And uh, uh, the Chinese uh, people refer to flat cabbage is Chinese cabbage, whereas what we call Chinese cabbage is really Napa cabbage, mm -hmm. very different. And the reason why they like that flat cabbage is because the leaves are thin and crisp. And now imagine what you do when you are making a stir fry. You have some beans, you have some bean sprouts, you have maybe a little meat and uh, things like that. And then uh, uh, oftentimes cabbage is used as an ingredient in a stir fry mix. You when you're making a stir fry, you want all about the same rate so that after stirring for a few minutes, everything is just right. If you were to use a storage cabbage, uh, your storage cabbage isn't done after a few minutes. Your storage cabbage has to cook for at least 30 minutes. So mm. uh, in a Chinese restaurant, especially in the wintertime when those flat cabbages are not available, they have to come in in the morning, uh, cook the cabbage, uh, and pre-cook it basically so that when the lunch crowd comes in, then they can add already cooked cabbage to the stir fry and uh, then everything is fine. But there's a whole different texture to storage cabbage. Uh, the nice thing about these flat cabbage, these thin crisp leaves with just a little bit of heat 
you wilt them a little bit, but they are still green, not gray. They're still nice, bright green. And they have a crispness and a sweetness to them that adds to the, the, to the texture. So you, the whole thing about stir fry is that it's quickly cooked, just enough to make it tender, but not so much to make it wilty and soggy, right? And mm-hmm. that, Chinese, that flat Chinese cabbage comes in and is uh, an important ingredient. Now, not everybody makes a stir fry, so you can take a look at those large uh, flat cabbages and those thin leaves. Uh, you can you can take those individual leaves, and because they're much bigger, they're actually great for making uh, cabbage rolls uh, and those kinds of dishes. But what you sometimes also see is that these flat cabbages are used uh, by Eastern European uh, cultures uh, as a uh, they make what they call a sour head out of it. So they cut the core out of it, but leave the whole cabbage head intact, and then uh, ferment the whole head uh, in a vat with regular sauerkraut. And then uh, in the winter time, when they were cabbage rolls, they pull the head out, peel a few leaves off it, because the fermentation process has softened everything, the leaves are really nice and pliable, and then uh, they build and made into cabbage rolls that way. So uh, again, uh, you take a look at the characteristics of of that particular uh, variety. Um, there are multiple uses for that particular variety, depending on how you want to use it, uh, how creative you are. So that is ideal for making stir fries. That cabbage is ideal for making cabbage rolls and flat cabbage is ideal for making uh, uh, already fermented uh, cabbage leaves for cabbage rolls. And then uh, whatever leftovers you have, are for uh, uh, make for make for a very nice fresh coleslaw that doesn't have to marinate very long. Another thing that uh, uh, our listeners can probably take a look at if they went to uh, the Biju Seeds website is to take a look at uh, cool wraps. It's a, you take a, a large portion of a of a flat cabbage leaves that you can use as a as a sandwich wrap or as a, uh, a lettuce alternative on which and things like that. So, but because the leaves are nice and thin and crisp and you really don't have to cook them, or if you cook them, you cook them for just a little bit till they're just crimp, tender and crisp. So like you said, Michael, hours about cabbage. I think uh, maybe it's time to get another question. I'll go on long. <laughs> well, we still haven't gotten to the pointed head cabbage. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we don't have to go there. Right, I, right, what, right, right. That's a whole other. Whole, yeah. What uh, I would suggest. Uh, subject. Yeah. So it's like, look, is you guys have, are you going to have your in-person field days again this summer? Uh, it'll be limited. Uh, I think uh, we'd certainly uh, welcome people to come out, uh, but but we think maybe what we should do rather than to have a one single event where we have a whole bunch of people milling around, what might make, make, make more sense is to have uh, smaller groups and uh, call ahead and let us know that you're coming and then uh, we'll give you a, more, of a, a more of a private tour rather than to have uh, 500 people all show up in one day. Yeah, because that is quite the event when you have, you know, the massive uh, and then the, the trials and just, right. yeah, it's really extensive. But, um, but yeah, I mean, definitely give them a call, get a tour because it's, um, again, just that, just that little education you got there on cabbage, like every single variety, uh, every, like we, I remember going there and we talked carrots, we talked turnips, we talked cabbages, we talked radishes even. I mean, like there was like a yep. 15 minute conversation on just, you know, which radishes we should be looking at. Um yep. So, you know, there's so, so much to talk about. Um, another question I know that you and I have discussed frequently 
has been the uh, the much chagrined uh, loss of uh, the uh, Nelson carrot. And I remember we talked extensively like why it was dropped as a carrot and like why all of a sudden was there this massive gap in the industry. So yeah. if you wouldn't mind sharing like, like a little bit about that story, I think people would be really interested to hear that. Yeah, well, uh, indeed, uh, Nelson was uh, an interesting story to talk about. The same thing as with, for instance, uh, you know, another, one, another example was Cobra onions. Mm-hmm. But Nelson in particular was, uh, has a, a very good rationale for why that was discontinued. And that is strictly a commercial rationale. The seed production on Nelson is not very good. And the seed production on Nelson is also not very reliable. So some years we get some seed, some years we don't get a lot of seed. Um, and if we get seed, uh, uh, maybe 50 to 60% of that seed is not usable. It's either too weak, doesn't have enough germination, or just too small. And so that means that, uh, you know, a typical uh, carrot seed variety probably on a hectare of uh, seed production would yield between 600 and 800 kilograms of usable seed. But Nelson, instead of 600 to 800 kilograms of usable seed, probably used, yielded between 60 and, and, and maybe 100 on a good year kilograms of usable seed. So that means that we had to invest of almost 10 times as much of uh, acreage in seed production of Nelson uh, as uh, we would for uh, another uh, commercial variety with, with good seed production. And uh, even though um, we... Uh, we, we knew that the seed production wasn't that good. We kept it alive because we had such a, a strong following and it was a really, really popular variety. So all the seed that we had, we really could sell. And the reason for that was, is because it was a relatively easy growing carrot, quickly to mature, but had a really nice texture and a really nice uh, carrot flavor. Uh, and so for, for growers, especially for roadside growers, CSA growers, um, growers that had a specific following for people that really liked good tasting carrots. Nelson was difficult to beat. Uh, it was one of the best ones. But, uh, you know, uh, as in all companies, uh, at some point or another, we uh, we expanded. Uh, we got a new sales manager. Uh, new sales managers uh, want to make a, an impact in their first year. So they want, to, they want the profitability to go up. And they start taking a hard look at uh, all the different varieties, uh, which ones make money and which ones do not. Well, uh, Nelson uh, uh, stood out like a sore thumb, of course. That's the one that has, we have lost money on Nelson in all the years that we've produced it. So uh, from a strictly uh, you know, business decision point of view, uh, it made perfect sense to discontinue Nelson. Uh, unfortunately, you were a little rash about that, a little bit uh, too abrupt. So there was not a lot of warning. All of a sudden, Nelson was gone, and there was not a good replacement for it. And that was uh, an, an error on our part. It would have been better to uh, develop a good replacement for Nelson, so that when we did discontinue Nelson, the growers would already be familiar with the replacement, less uh, anxiety and heartache. Uh, that was, uh, you know, as I said, that, that decision to discontinue Nelson was rather abrupt. It made perfect sense from a business management point of view, but it uh, certainly did not uh, make us, uh, it, it, it was not the right decision for a lot of people who were relying on Nelson as their uh, as the main carrot for, the, for, the, for customers who, who preferred that type of carrot. Now, we had alternatives, of course. 
we had varieties like Napoli, we had varieties like Yaya, we had Mokum, we had uh, Nurja at one point, uh, and uh, some other varieties that uh, that were also good. But generally speaking, most people preferred Nelson over those other varieties. We could get along. Well, life did not end as we knew it. Uh, that was a bit of a, a gap that we have been trying to fill. But the good news is that the new variety that we've uh, re recently released is a variety called Narvik, N-A-R-V-I-K, uh, named after a, 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 a town in Norway, a, a harbor town in Norway that played an important role in the Second World War. So um, interesting, interesting connection there. But uh, Narvik is uh, a, a Nelson type. Uh, we've seen it now uh, for a few seasons, a uh, nice upright top, uh, a nice root, very makes you really uh, very reminiscent of Nelson, uh, root shape, etc. Um, and the flavor is very good, very good. Um, I wish we'd had some Nelson to plant side by side to see which one is better. But you know what, uh, Michael, uh, flavor and taste is a, uh, is a very personal thing. I remember when uh, Nelson was just first being discontinued, we had a little trial in Geneva where we planted uh, Yaya and Napoli and Mokum and uh, Nelson and Nagovia and Nectar. And uh, we, we cleaned them and uh, cut them in little pieces. And we did a little taste test with the people that came to our field days. And we asked them to rate these carrots uh, blind and uh, as, to, as to which ones they liked. And what do you think of that, uh, Michael? Do you think there was one variety that really stood out? Uh, no, <laughs> probably everyone chose something a little different. Well, you're right on there because, you know, uh, out of the six varieties, they all scored out uh, the same percentage. Everybody between 15 and 20% uh, of people preferred either variety one, two, three, four, five, or six. So then the, then the, the argument at some point or another you could make is said, if Nelson really is the best carrot, then everybody should pick Nelson as the number one. But it goes to show that different people look for different things in carrots, right? Sometimes people like the texture, sometimes people like the, the juiciness, sometimes people like the carrot flavor, sometimes they like the color, you know, because people eat with their eyes as well. And so um, everybody picks, has, has a slightly different preference. And that doesn't, so that means that when uh, you know, I've, I've certainly had growers come up to me at trade shows, I want you uh, to recommend to me the, the best tasting carrot variety that you have. And that's always a bit of a loaded, uh, loaded question because um, I know what, which varieties I like best, but I also know that other people like other varieties. So to say this is the best carrot as a one blanket statement is, uh, is just about impossible. But uh, I, I, we, we, I think we recognize that uh, carrot flavor is uh, important, especially uh, for people that uh, want to buy fresh produce and they want to be able to eat it raw and they want to have a pleasant experience. And we breed for those kinds of things, of course. And Nelson was a, was a fine example of that. Too bad that Nelson just didn't make us any money, but now we have another variety, Narvik, that uh, I think uh, has, a, has a bright future. Uh -huh. Absolutely. 
This podcast is brought to you by Steward, and Dan is here with another tip on financing and understanding your numbers. Dan, why are knowing your numbers so important, especially if you're going for funding? Understanding how your business supports itself in terms of revenue expenses, that's effectively what a lender or what funding is, is looking at. You know, What cash flow can you generate to support any funding? It's something that farmers know intuitively, but when you ask them to prepare financial statements, they, they freeze. I mean, I think one out of like 60 farms that we've worked with had them prepared and organized and ready mm -hmm. to go. It's normally something that's lagging. They're only preparing it when it's demanded. And when you're preparing it after you've already submitted applications, it, it you know, it's perceived as maybe you don't know what you're, you're doing or you're not organized. So the way I like to think of it for farmers is if you think about how you're growing your product, you know, what does it cost to produce the product? What are you selling it for? How much of it are you selling? That's your margin. That's what you're mm -hmm. making on each product. And that can get to your overall revenue. And then what are your general costs, you know, overhead that you can reduce out of that? So I, I find a lot of times we help farmers prepare these documents and statements by just talking them through their business. What are their business lines? What are they producing? Mm -hmm. What are they selling it for? What are their markets? And they can talk about that for hours. It's not that they don't know. It's how do I even translate into revenue and margin and cash flow and EBITDA and all of these terms mm -hmm. that necessarily aren't uh, aren't suited for them. So I think helping to write down those general ideas, you know, revenue expenses, where you're selling, what you're selling, and trying to find someone that can help you prepare it. Even if it's not perfect, having it written down, having it prepared goes a long way. Um, I would say most lenders understand that farmers are not uh, focused on that. And at least the type of farmer we're supporting, the small to mid-sized farmer, they're not expected to have staff yeah. and people to prepare those reports. Um, but I do think it's important to to be thoughtful about, you know, we we are definitely flexible steward in terms of understanding that farmers aren't focused on that. But that's, I think, for FSA and traditional loans, the biggest holdup is always in financial statements, financial information. That's where most deals kind of freeze because yeah. farmers don't have it ready. They don't know how to get it ready. They don't have the time to get it ready. They forget about it and, and then it's over. Yeah. And I think the one, the one of the big things is if people start doing cash, a lot of cash sales, that frequently leaves no paper trail. And so that's a huge no-no. So um, our accountant even has this every single month. He's like, okay, would you spend on cash? And he actually has a spreadsheet for us that we enter in any cash sales. And it's just a cash account in our business that everything's tracked through there because that gives a very clean aspect. So we know exactly what's coming in and coming out instead of having, you know, maybe 10 or 15, $20,000 a year, which just never Ever gets tracked in your business. Yeah. And I think finding a good bookkeeper accountant is very important. I find farmers also often have trouble finding one. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a platform I recommend called Upwork. That's it's actually the largest freelancer platform in the <laughs> world. You can easily post on there, find a bookkeeper for 10 to 20 bucks an hour who can help do your books, use a decent software. A lot of farmers are using QuickBooks desktop. It's terrible. QuickBooks yeah. online is not much better. Zero XERO, I, I like best. I think it's- Yep, that's what we use. Famous. It's yep. by far, I think, the best. So, you know, go to a platform, find an online bookkeeper who can help you get organized or find one in your community, but just have someone who can help put that structure in place because trying to catch up later and do your books for years past that you haven't done is very difficult. It's a but nightmare. If each month you're just trying to get something moderately accurate, you know, you'll be in a good place to start. Yep. So don't, don't just freeze at like, well, I don't know how to do it. I can't do it nobody's expecting you to know how to do it. Just find someone who can help you with it. It's money very, very well spent. Now, I know there was a similar thing with uh, winterboard kale, um, that it wasn't actually 
a problem with profitability on the seed crop, but I think it was just crop failure after crop failure, correct? Yeah, well, the, the trouble with the, with, the, with the kale in general and the trouble with cabbage is that uh, in order to, when you're making hybrid varieties, of course, we have to talk about hybrid varieties, is that you have uh, uh, what you'd like to do in order to get a high level of hybridity in your seeds. So it means that most of the seed that you're producing is indeed hybrid and not the result of inbreeding. Uh, you need to have a mechanism that... Uh, that prevents self-pollination of the female. Mm, okay. And uh, in cabbage, we uh, relied for a long time on what is called uh, self-incompatibility genes. So that means that the uh, that the pollen of uh, of the the mother plant is not easily accepted by the mother plant, but and that then encourages outcrossing. So that the the, the father line. The, the, should be, the pollen of the father line should be acceptable to the female parent, but the female parent should not like to accept her own pollen. And by working with those mechanisms, you can uh, encourage a high degree of outcrossing, which means a high degree of hybridity. But uh, in cabbage, that works fairly well for the most part, although we still have some, every once in a while you have an inbred or you, you sometimes you get what we call a bastard. Uh, but uh, in kale, that self-incompatibility mechanism is rather weak. And winter boar in particular is quite, that system is quite weak. So we have a lot of uh, seed production in winter boar uh, where they, uh, the, the percent, of, percent of inbreeding is 50%, 60%. Sometimes we have lots that have 70% inbreds. And uh, as a, a seed company that likes to maintain a reputation as having high quality seed, uh, and selling hybrid vegetable seed, we just cannot put seed out in the marketplace that is 50% inbreds. So then you get uh, you get some uh, some true to type winter board plants, and then you get a whole bunch of inbred plants that are uh, weaker and smaller. And then you'd say, well, this is not a really particularly strong field of winter board because look at this thing. This thing is all over the place. There's all different kinds of types in here. But that is because there's a high degree of, uh, of inbreeding there that for winter board was a difficult problem to solve. Uh, winter boar was, you know, when when we didn't have a, a large demand for kale seed, uh, we could live with that. You know, we could produce enough seed with a high degree of hybridity that we could meet the market demands. But then, as you know, uh, what was it about seven, eight, nine years ago, uh, the kale craze hit, yes. and uh, all of a sudden, you know, we went from you know a few handfuls of kale seed every year to uh, a couple of container loads of kale seed every year. That was crazy. That, wow. that, that was just impossible. And so in that case, um, winter boar really didn't meet our needs anymore. So we developed uh, several different uh, varieties since then. The darker boar is one that uh, probably a lot of people know. Darker boar is much better in seed production. Uh, and then another one was reflex. And then the newest one is olden boar. Uh, much better varieties when it comes to seed production. Not perfect but much better than winter boar. So uh, winter boar is still available, but it's going to be in limited amounts uh, for the reasons that I already explained. But uh, in order to meet the market demand, darker boar and olden boar and uh, 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 star boar, for instance, another variety that works quite well, uh, we, can, we can meet uh, the kale seed demand uh, of the market at present. 
But, you know, that brings up an interesting point because uh, we talk about self-incompatibility systems. You know, male sterility is something that happens in onions. It's a natural uh, trait. And male sterility happens in carrots. Uh, It's a natural trait. Um, In cabbage, we don't have that necessarily. But there is a system that is called cytoplastic cytoplasmic male sterility that comes out of a, a radish that was uh, first identified in Japan. And uh, that uh, mechanism uh, would allow you to uh, make a female line male sterile, which means that uh, if you have a, a male sterile female line, uh, she would not produce any pollen of her own because you know, clearly she is sterile on the male parts. The female parts still work, but the male parts do not. And that means that you would have 100% outcrossing, which means 100% hybrid seed. Uh, and that is a, a mechanism that is being used more and more by all the uh, seed companies that produce brassica seed you know, in cabbages. Uh, you can use it in kohlrabi, you can use it in kale, you can use it in cabbage, you can use it in everything in the brassica oleracea family. So that's a, that's a, a mechanism uh, that works well. But uh, unfortunately, or, or let's put, it's not unfortunate, but you know, th- there are some concerns within the organic community about that because mm. uh, we, can, we can move cytoplasmic male sterility around through traditional breeding techniques, but then it takes 10, 15 years to, to, to get a line that is male sterile. But we can also do it through uh, uh, protoplast fusion, basically. And protoplast fusion is that you take uh, a cell uh, that, uh, that is not male sterile uh, and you uh, suck the nucleus out of that cell and then you inject that uh, nucleus into a cell that does have the male sterility traits. Uh, and the reason why uh, it's called cytoplasmic male sterility means that the, 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 the factors that make, that cause the male sterility are located in the cytoplasm. So the cell fluid outside of the mm. And you know, and uh, these cytoplasmic factors are usually found in the in the either the chloroplast or in the mitochondria, right? But you know, you can you can com- you can make that combination through physical manipulation, but uh, protoplast fusion, as that is called, uh, gets a little bit uh, in the neighborhood of uh, uh, genetic ma- manipulation, um, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, introduction of foreign DNA into a cell. It's not. Technically speaking, of course, um, it's cabbage to cabbage, so there is no species barrier there. But the whole mechanism is just a little suspect to um, some people in the organic community. So, cytoplasmic males, the the use of cytoplasmic male sterility is not uh, that easily accepted in the organic community. And we understand that. And that means that uh, we will maintain. Uh, some of the, the are better uh, cabbage varieties as uh, free of CMS, specifically for the organic community. Gotcha. So, okay, so what you're describing is, as you said, it's cabbage and cabbage, but it is changing it. But it's, So it's not like, you know, chicken and cabbage and stuff like that, which is... What no, no, no. Are. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's fascinating what they're doing and just the level of um, the science that goes behind this. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I know there are people out there which would just rather be growing, um, which are concerned about the male, male sterility part of this and would just be like to grow um, like the heirlooms. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I mean, the reason why we switched to hybrids is just your yield is, you know, double or triple. 
And so, and obviously there's good, there's, there are some good heirlooms out there, but just the consistency um, aspect of it, it's just, it's just night and day difference. Yeah. Well, it's uh, the, 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 uh, we talked about it in the beginning that what we really want to do is we want to uh, incorporate uh, pest disease, uh, pest resistance, disease resistance, uh, uh, other traits. It's to, uh, to make a combination of traits in a single uh, variety uh, through uh, open pollinated breeding. Uh, uh, the, re the really the way the way to the way to be able to make those different combinations is to uh, find individuals with a particular trait, uh, 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 do a lot of back crossing, make an inbred line out of them that is that is relatively uniform, that is that contributes that a particular trait, and then you can combine that line with another line that has another particular trait, and that means that you can have uh, for instance, you can have uh, you can have one line that has resistance to, let's say, a carrot line, a resistance to uh, alternaria leaf blight, and a line that uh, that has a very nice root quality. For instance, uh, you combine the two, and then hopefully, what you get is a variety that has a very nice root quality and alternaria resistance. Uh, if you did that through open pollinated breeding, you'd basically have to uh, scout fields for that one plant that has both alternary resistance and a very clean root and then uh, uh, and, and hope that you get lucky uh, that's that's difficult to do it's okay to do if you're only looking for two traits but if you're looking for three traits or you want for instance you want a nice root quality and it stores well and it is resistant to bolting and it has some resistance to pythium for instance you know those things we can make through hybridization, but it's much more, much, much more difficult to do that through open pollinated breeding. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, uh, but uh, just like you said, uh, Michael, there are some really nice uh, open pollinated varieties out there and, uh, and we're lucky enough that, uh, that you that, uh, to find them and they, and they work for you, then there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, it just the and I, cause I know some people even like think they can save their own uh, seed from hybrids, but that just doesn't work. Yeah, then you have to have to go back to your high school uh, uh, biology classes and uh, start uh, looking at the uh, at what Gregor Mendel did, of course. You know, yes, with peas, right? You get you get yeah the peas. You get uh, you get segregation of those traits. Uh, you know, there's a, there's always a, a very interesting discussion about that. Is that uh, what's the what's the motivation for uh, companies to make hybrid vegetable seed? Well. Uh, some people have the theory that that, that is just done because the vegetable seed companies uh, want to make sure that you cannot uh, raise your own seed from these hybrids. Um, of course, that is uh, that is a uh, that is a consequence of hybrid. Is that yeah. you save the seed. Uh, what you have to do is you have to maintain two or three different parent lines. Uh, to be able to recreate that hybrid. And that's basically what seed companies do is that every, every round of seed production, they recreate the same hybrid because we maintain the parent lines. But the real reason for hybridization is what I just described, is to be able to make progress in breeding, to be able to stack traits one on top of the other so that you can get a single variety with multiple benefits, with multiple desirable traits. That's the, that's the, the real reason for it. The, the downfall is that if you're really interested in raising your own seed, uh, you cannot do that uh, by buying a hybrid. But what you can do with buying a hybrid is you can you can uh, you can that hybrid down, as we call it, 
where you can, uh, you know, you, if you if you like the disease resistance, for instance, or you like the root quality, or you like uh, the storability in a particular variety, you could you could take a hybrid. You can uh, take that seed. You make an what you call a, a second generation, an F2 or an F3, and or you start selecting till you mm. find the individuals that you like, uh, and then uh, then you can make your own breeding line out of that, and then. Uh, if you uh, do that with some other varieties as well, you can come up with a collection of different breeding lines. And then before you know it, you are now a, a hybrid vegetable plant breeder and you can combine all the different and start making your own hybrids. And there's nothing wrong with that. The trouble is, Michael, is that it takes all of your energy and all of your time to do that. And then you're, there's not a lot of time left to, to produce a crop anymore. To do to do the kind of thing you got into farming for uh, for in the first place, right? So, yeah. as you get a bit of a division of labor, some people are really good growers, other people are really good plant breeders. So, if the, you should lead the plant breeders to people that are good at plant breeding, and if you're if you're a good grower, you should be the grower. And then, um, ideally, what we can do is we we can work together. Uh, the plant breeder and the seed company makes the seed. The grower buys it that benefits the seed company but also the grower benefits because he didn't have to spend all of his or his or her time uh, producing uh, high quality healthy seed of varieties that are that, that fit the market right so one hand washes the other so to speak uh, a seed company is nothing without growers and uh, growers that have come to rely on seed companies uh, really rely on those seed companies to, to provide them with the high quality seed that they need yeah, absolutely. Now, um, with that too, is because um, yeah, you can try to save your own seeds, especially on the, um, the 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 open pollinated style. But the problem is then you have to manage it properly. And how long does it take to come up with a, a new hybrid? How many years do you typically work at that before? From you know you make the first crosses all the way to the seed is released on the marketplace. Yeah, well, especially in uh, biannual crops where we where we work, right? Uh, yeah. It takes usually uh, six to seven rounds of inbreeding before you have a an, an inbred line, right? So after you've selected individuals that you'd like to work with, uh, before you have a line of that that takes six to seven rounds. But because it's a biannual crop, that means you have to raise the first year crop, store it, and then let it go to seed the next year. So six to seven rounds means 12 to 14 years before you uh, before you have an inbred line. Then you have to start combining those inbred lines to make hybrids. And as we already described, it takes three to four years before you before you feel comfortable with a, with a new cross uh, to see if you want to scale it up with commercial production, yes or no. So now we're talking uh, 15 to 17 years. Then it takes a while for stock seed uh, levels to be uh, brought up. And then you have to get into the commercial production and then you have to scale that up. So typically from the very beginning of beginning to make an inbred line to where you can start selling seed commercially, you're talking probably about 18 to 20 years at a minimum. Wow. That takes, but that's with biennial crops, right? So if you want something like squash, for instance, you know, that's a uh, one-year crop tomatoes, you can do three rounds in a year if you uh, produce in uh, uh, North America, South America, maybe Asia. Uh, you can, you know, that's a, from 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 sowing the seed to harvesting the seed is only about three months in tomatoes. In carrots, it's two years. Yeah. So uh, 
that's why you know tomato breeding usually goes pretty quick, uh, and you see that uh, squash breeding usually is uh, is something that moves uh, moves right along. But in the crops where Bijo specializes, mostly biennial crops, that takes a long time. Now, when we have a whole bunch of breeding lines that we know uh, work well, and we already have some of those lines that are contributing to commercial hybrids, that means that there's already fairly decent stock seed supply. Uh, that process that I described, it's going to take 18 to 20 years. We can speed that along, but you know, then it becomes a matter of logistics, of, uh, of planning and things like that. But you can shorten that process to oh, probably uh, 12 to 15 years, probably something like that. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, but, that's it's still, what... but, it's still, but it's still quite an investment. Yes. Yeah. And that's why you see some of these smaller growers going after the new squashes, the new lettuces, um, tomatoes, yep. that kind of thing, but it takes the big, massive companies with huge R&D budgets to go after the beets, the carrots, the cabbages, um, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, because I, I, yeah, I mean, that's why I think you know, people look at good quality seed and they see the cost of it and they're like, oh my gosh, but it comes back to those 15 to 20 years of developing it before they actually have, and all the failures that go into before they can actually have something. Right, right. As, a, as you already explained, you know, 98% of what we make uh, goes into the garbage because it's, it's just, you know, <laughs> we, we, try to, we try to target the breeding as much as we can, but we have, as we have, uh, we have a, good, a good series of failures. And even with some, some uh, pretty smart breeders and some very good educated guesses, uh, we don't always get what we need. Part of the problem is, of course, is that we're trying to improve on what we already have, right? And yeah. that's... Sometimes, sometimes you're a victim of your own success. I mean, you can you can try to get better, but you know, if you're already pretty good, then it's not so easy to get better yet. So sometimes the best progress is made when you're when you're first beginning. Those are the, those are the biggest steps and the easiest steps to make. Yes, because yeah, it's that last five to ten percent, which is incredibly challenging. Yeah, yeah. So, what percentage would you say would be of someone's success comes from high quality seed versus you know weeding the crop versus the right fertility? Well, I think uh, uh, they are all uh, they're all uh, important uh, elements of of, uh, of success, aren't they? I mean, if you yeah. uh, if you have uh, excellent weed control and you have. Uh, uh, a fantastic market, but you're using a variety that is not very productive. Then uh, you know that becomes your limiting factor at that point. You know that, that you, if you you could do two or three times as much uh, production, but maybe better flavor, better quality, better market pricing, uh, with with a, a a good productive variety that is well adapted to your market, uh, and then uh, that's that's it. But if you have uh, a very challenging ground, uh, a lot of soil compaction, or maybe not access to irrigation water, or uh, you have an enormous weed bank that is creating problems for you, and you have good means of con- controlling those weeds. Uh, a, a good hybrid variety isn't going to give you that much more success. I think you know the at that point the variety is not the limiting factor, but it's the weed control or the mm-hmm. the soil structure or something like that. Uh, ideally. Uh, and I think this is the challenge, right, for all growers is to make sure that everything is working because uh, if everything is working, then everything works in concert and you get the best possible success. If there are things that are limiting factors, uh, they become a real drag on the whole thing. 
and uh, sometimes sometimes those limiting factors are pretty easy to identify, but sometimes they, they can, much be, can be much more difficult to pinpoint. It can, sometimes it can be a fertility issue, a micronutrient issue, uh, a, 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 a cultural practices issue that maybe uh, it, it takes a while to figure out. Uh, it, uh, it, it takes persistence and it takes... Uh, it takes a willingness to, to try different things, and it takes uh, it takes the courage to to maybe sometimes admit that you made a mistake. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it can it can be it can hurt your pride, but uh, you know what? Um, you'll get over it, uh, especially when uh, the next crop is better. Mm-hmm. I think that's why we see obviously some of the greenhouse seed uh, really expensive, as well as just the difference you can see there. I mean, from like let's say a brand new wine compared to some yeah. of the new um, heirloom hybrid types they have out there. Just the difference mm-hmm. is phenomenal. Um, so yeah. that's, as, and the cost <laughs> can be phenomenal too. Um, yeah. So that's why you see that much work put into that because you can dial things in so tightly and it makes a massive, massive difference. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. But you know, in, uh, in greenhouse situations, uh, there's, you have a lot more control already, right? So yeah. Then, then, then it's really the genetics that often uh, are the are the uh, uh, the determining factor for uh, ultimate success. But uh, in field situations, yeah, there's a there's a uh, if you have enough experience and your soil is right, then uh, the varieties can make uh, quite a quite a, a difference. But yeah. if you're not at that level yet, yeah, then you have some other things that uh, that need to get. Uh, that need to get fixed first before you can start seeing the benefits of uh, different variety selections. Yeah. I think, you know, like something with Rover radish, which um, for a while, you know, we were just, I think it was Chariot and then Rover came along and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, Oh my gosh, it makes such a massive difference. I mean, we just splitting alone. It's a huge difference. So being yeah. able to, uh, you know, not have to uh, be able to work with a, a superior variety and that our pack out rate was now like 25 to 40% more than some of those older varieties. Um, yeah. and, and I don't think people realize that until they get to a certain scale and, you know, you're actually looking at a hundred foot bed and saying, you know, what, how many bunches did I get out? Was it 150? Was it 250? Was it 300 bunches of radishes out of that bed? And you start to really see that that hybrid seed that really uh, plays a massive difference in your, your uh, profit per bed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and uh, and you know it, Michael, uh, and I think a lot of uh, your listeners uh, know it too. Is that uh, uh, it's it, uh, it's it's a good idea to, uh, to 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 keep your eye open and to see what's new, what's out there, and then uh, with uh, having a good uh, relationship with your seed supplier uh, to be able to. Uh, trust their advice and maybe trust their suggestions and this here's something new i think this is gonna this is gonna you're gonna like it let's try some right uh-huh. of course the uh the, the advice i always give uh, growers uh, you know sometimes growers get very enthusiastic my advice is always don't plant any more than you can afford to lose right is a, <laughs> a new varieties just because it did really well in ohio doesn't necessarily mean it's going to do really well in vermont right so, Absolutely. Yeah. So. Well, let's let's finish off with that a little bit. You know, having a good relationship with your obviously seed rep um, or your you know like calling you guys out there and uh, talking to you folks about that. So talk about like what are the kinds of things you can do to have a good relationship. Well, um, um, having a good relationship with your seed rep uh, uh, 
you know, first of all, personalities have to click, right? Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes uh, people, people with the best intentions, if you if you're not if you're not clicking, uh, then then it's difficult to maintain a good relationship. You can still be professional, you can still be courteous, but it'd be nice if you if there's a certain amount of trust and if there's a certain amount of uh, of mutual respect and understanding and uh, and a sense that you're in it together, right? Uh, that's nice if you can have that with uh, with all of your suppliers, and that's that's a fantastic. And it depends on your supplier, but it depends a little bit on yourself too, right? If you're the kind of person that says, "Here comes another one of these uh, these salesmen. I don't have time for them. Uh, tell them to tell them to come back next week, or tell them to come back another time when I'm not busy." Then uh, then it's difficult to build a good relationship with that uh, with that uh, supplier. Uh, also, if you're a supplier and your only goal is to uh, is to sell, 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 uh, and to and to push something onto uh, your customer uh, just because you got to make your numbers. That doesn't make for a very good long-term relationship either. You're sure in the short term that the supplier can make its sales goals, but uh, that doesn't mean that uh, you're going to build up a good relationship and you're going to ha- and you're going to meet long-term goals. The long-term goals should be is we learn together, uh, we try things together. Uh, I'm doing my best to supply you with the best quality seed that I can on time in the form that you need, and, uh, it, and that the variety is gonna gonna work for you and make you some money. And then in return, uh, the grower says, "I like what this uh, gentleman or this lady uh, recommended to me, and uh, uh, I'm I'm open to listening to him some more." But uh, it's a it's a matter of. Uh, uh, you have to be open-minded. Uh, you have to uh, you have to you have to listen to each other, and and then ultimately uh, the varieties have to prove themselves, right? Yeah, yeah. If the if uh, if uh, the varieties don't prove themselves, uh, no matter how good the relationship is, at some point or another, uh, decision has to be made. Variety A that you, my favorite seed supplier, is supplying me isn't cutting it. But variety B from another supplier is better. Um, you know, we have to respect that, and we have to say variety B is going to be the winner in this case. And now it's up to supplier A to uh, to come up with uh, something that is better than supplier. Yeah. Right? Well, I, I, that's something I appreciate about you is you know I've always talked to you about varieties, and every so often you'd be like, well, you know, this variety out there is probably a better fit for you, um, even if it wasn't one of your own. So that's obviously you know that's something I really appreciate. I think the other thing too is to always be looking at the aspect of um, your system too. So like your system is going to change too. Like uh, depending on how you're growing things, things are going to be certain varieties are going to be better than others. Yeah. Um, and also not going to your seed rep and saying, I want the best carrot. Because <laughs> as we just talked about cabbage, you know, there's like 19,000 different ways you might want to use a cabbage. And so saying, hey, you know, this is what I'm looking for. This is the season I've got it. So giving them some more information and yeah. saying, these are what I've tried so far. This is how they performed for me. This will make your job just so, so much more easy. And frankly, I think you're going to be more often to get a good education answer back than just like, well, try this, this, and this, because there are more shopping things. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So you have to, you have to, uh, you know, in order to in order to make the, the, that uh, that that uh, relationship work uh, as well as it should, means that uh, you both have to be willing to uh, to supply information. You know, uh, you can, uh, and that that comes down to trust, right? So, uh, yeah. growers when they talk to a supplier, they don't want to show uh, all the 
show all their cards. They they kind of play uh, play the cards fairly close to the vest because sometimes they're afraid that the supplier is going to take that information and is going to go to the competitor and say, well, you know, Mr. Mm-hmm. Jones always growing these things and is having really good luck with them. And uh, Mr. Jones said, hey, that was my competitive advantage there. So I, yeah, thanks for giving up my secret there. You know, so <laughs> it's a it's a it's a yeah. You have to. It's a it's a fine line, and uh, that means that. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a matter of give and take. And uh, uh, again, uh, it, 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 it takes a several years of investment of time to find out whether the relationship is working or not. Yeah, but once you build that relationship, um, you know, there's, there can be some really cool things that come out of it. Like, you know, sure. our farm was one of the first ones in the U.S. We were one of the first, I think, six farms in the U.S. that were uh, trialing the Salonobas. Um, yep. Back, I forget what year. I think that was 2012 that those actually hit the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was basically like you know, the living room the field. There was all sorts of stipulations that we had to do around it. But um, I mean, that was really cool. I mean, I know Paul and Sandy have actually been to Europe with you down to the uh, Netherlands to look at you know actual on the the parent farms to look at stuff. So um, yep. I mean, that's very cool too. So. You know, having that relationship can really, really help. And again, it obviously, if you're a good farmer doing good trials, the relationship with a seed breeder is also incredibly uh, helpful too because they get really good feedback. Yeah, for sure. And of course, especially if you're if you're hosting breeding trials where you're taking some of the you know look at some of the new stuff that isn't out yet but will be out soon, it gives you an advanced uh, look, right? So it. Uh, mm-hmm. It, you might be able to identify an opportunity that uh, as soon as the opportunity actually uh, is made available to you, you're, you don't have to, you don't have to think about it anymore. You already know the answer. Yes, this one is going to work for me and I, I'll, I'll take it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, Jan, anything you'd like to leave with us before we go? Any final thoughts? Well, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, Michael, I've enjoyed the conversation. It's always uh, interesting to talk about these kinds of things. Uh, you know, there's a lot that goes on in visible uh, breeding, uh, and there's a there's a there's you know a, a lot of people in our company and other vegetable seed companies that do an awful lot of good work uh, to make varieties better, uh, and, um, and and it's not always easy to talk about that kind of work because you know uh, we're kind of talk we're usually kind of stuck in the here and now. Uh, what what do you have for me today that is going to make my life better? When uh, by being involved in this plant breeding process, I can talk to you talk to you about what is going to make your life better today. But I would also like to be able to talk to you about what is going to make your life better five years from now, ten years from now, fifteen years from now. That is in development, and mm-hmm. a lot of there's a lot of excitement there that uh, that would be uh, great to be able to share with growers. Uh, but that's not always possible, of course. You know, uh, sometimes sometimes we get excited about stuff that we have in development, but uh, we also have to be careful about not to not to overpromise and then underdeliver. So uh, uh, it's like with the with the with with everything. Uh, I think uh, we we are happy with what we have today, and we're confident that uh, the future is going to be bright. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't wait to see what's coming down the line, and uh, I won't make it up to you guys this summer, but I will be sure to, uh, you know, watch the website and stuff for new pictures, new varieties that are coming down the line. So, Absolutely. Well, yeah, thank you so much for your time today, and again, thank you so much for the work you do, because it is incredibly important for farmers to, be able to get that kind of information 
um, you know, and understand that again, you know, getting this, the education on cabbage alone has been incredibly valuable to just understanding what the marketplace is and, you know, why cabbages are like they are and how they behave in the marketplace. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's great. Uh, Michael, it, uh, it, uh, it always gives us great pleasure when people come to visit and uh, we're more than happy to give people a, a tour and to have those kinds of conversations in the field where we're actually talking uh, about the product. You know, we're talking about Brussels sprouts, or fennel, leeks, onions, carrots, uh, beets. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot to see and a lot to talk about and a lot to learn. It is totally interesting and it's uh, actually quite exciting to be in this field uh, and especially this time of year when everything is fresh and new and uh-huh. just beautiful nature is such a wonderful uh, wonderful thing to be with and it's such a privilege to be able to work with nature absolutely well thanks so much for your time and uh look to look forward to catching up at a later point sounds great uh, michael i look forward to it all right thanks yeah bye bye Hey, Thriving Farmers, have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about you know some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.